Reading from the Old Testament, Psalm 89, 24 through 27. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall set his hand on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Our sermon this morning is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we preached the book of Colossians about five years ago. There's only four chapters in Colossians, but Colossians of um, all of Paul's writings is really like heavily, you know, like heavily packed, dense theology. And so sermonizing anything from the book of Colossians takes a lot of work because it, it's a lot about theological ideas. It's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily present itself um, as um, like low-hanging fruit for application. Like, therefore, this is true about God and go do this. And we can do that. I'm going to try to do that this morning. But I just want to sort of front load our sermon this morning by saying that there's some heavy theological concepts here, and I'll explain why I chose this topic on the heels of um, Christmas. Uh, so Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, thank you now for your word Illuminate our hearts, O oh God, that this passage of Scripture would not be boring to us, but rather give life to us, that we would see in it concepts and ideas that would radically transform our hearts, that we might know you deeper and serve you better and love you more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, although today is the last... Sunday of the year, technically we are still in Christmas season, last week, last Sunday, and on Friday on Christmas Eve, we focused on the details surrounding the nativity, the birth of Jesus. And, you know, this time of year, the birth of Jesus occupies our imagination, and to the point where sometimes we fill in the story with details that are not even in the Bible. Um, sometimes that's okay, and sometimes it's not. Um, but that's just something we do. We refer to Jesus, you know, his coming in the flesh and his earthly life as the incarnation. So 
just sort of raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before, the incarnation. Uh, now, raise your hand if you are not entirely sure what the word incarnation means. Okay, no one will admit that. All right. Incarnation simply means embodiment or representation in human form. Beethoven was said to be the incarnation of artistic genius. What the incarnation of Jesus means to us, the embodiment of God in the flesh, we get from Scripture. But those Scriptures, like the one here this morning, were not written immediately after Jesus' birth. In other words, it took time for the early community of faith to figure out who Jesus was and what it meant. In other words... Uh, we might think that all of the first disciples immediately had all of these amazing doctrines like codified, you know, the minute they encountered Jesus. But that's just not true. It's not true for us, nor was it true for the apostles. Um, and you see this as Jesus encounters the apostles and he's, you know, sort of frustrated. He's like, you still don't get it? Right? I mean, there, there are places like that where Jesus is sort of frustrated you know, with the disciples. So it took them time, and especially after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, of course, they understood much better, but it still took time to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. They weren't superhumans. They looked back in their Old Testament or their Hebrew Bible and said, ah, this means this is what this is, this is what that is, and it took them time to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. So in time... Their understanding would move beyond the sort of historical event of the birth of Jesus to occupy much deeper theological meaning, if that makes sense. And so already by the middle of the first century, the New Testament writers started to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and this passage in Colossians represents that. It represents an early formulation of Christian theology by around the mid-50s A.D., that's, that's right around when Colossians was written, 49 A.D. to about 55 A.D. possibly. And as I said, the disciples and the apostles did not immediately understand, but this represents some of the earliest Christian theology, and this is really good stuff here. And so about 30 years after Jesus' life, this is written. And it reflects the understanding that Jesus was not just a descendant of Israel's most beloved King David. He was not just a new kind of Moses or some anointed prophet. But he held a position of preeminence over all things. And so I want to spend our time this morning focusing on the preeminence of Christ. And I'll unpack even what that word means We've probably heard it, maybe we couldn't totally define it, but preeminence is the quality of superiority or excellence or greatness or predominance, peerlessness, transcendence, and importance. Preeminence is the fact of surpassing all others, but in like, in, in like a transcendent way, so in a way that Humans are not preeminent. We could refer to people as preeminent in their field, right? Maybe Warren Buffett in the field of investing or Michael Jordan in the f 
field of basketball, we would say those guys are preeminent. Uh, but really, the use of the idea here is a transcendent idea. It's something that, that transcends and goes beyond mere human capabilities. And so what we're about to see this morning is that the baby born in the manger is also head of creation. Three things I want us to see. The head of creation. We'll see that the son of Mary is also the head of the body, the church. And we'll see that the child from the nativity would become the head of the new creation. Head of creation, head of the body, the church, head of the new creation. In other words, these three ideas, which flow out of the idea of Christ's preeminence, is another take on the incarnation, right? So we've moved from the, the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve, the sort of baby in the manger, to a, a more fully orbed theology of who that baby really was. So number one, he's the head of creation. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And you'll notice that statement is broken into two parts. There's a comma there. He's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When we think of image, we may remember in Exodus 20 a prohibition against making images. Do you remember that in Exodus 20? It's a part of the Ten Commandments, Second Commandment actually. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or bow down before it. And obviously this is God forbidding idolatry like ancient people were prone to do. They would sort of carve from a piece of wood an image of their God and they would bow down to a piece of wood or a totem or a statue. And it's partly true that that is why God forbade the making of images but there is something else that is true that you may have never heard before, and it's this, that God did not want making, people making images of him because he was reserving the right to image himself in Jesus. Don't make an image of me. There's an image coming. It's gonna be the true image. In Jesus, the invisible has become visible. Jesus is the image of God. A couple of passages of scripture that unpack this, Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Another one in John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only son, has made him known. So Jesus, as the image of God, reveals the invisible. He's a visible manifestation of the invisible reality of God. In all of humanity's sort of ideas about God, some get closer than others. If you can look at sort of the, hist the, the world history of ideas about God like darts on a dartboard. Anybody play darts? Or you know, you know what darts are. Right? So all these ideas are like darts on a dartboard, and some get closer to the bullseye, but none of them land. But Jesus is the bullseye. Jesus is the bullseye that nails the mark right in the middle. 
That's what it means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I'll just pause there for a second to think about that. The invisible God that we serve, the Bible says God is a spirit, has imaged himself in the person and work of Jesus. You might ask, why did God wait so long? But we have now, here we are almost 2,000 years after the fact, an understanding that the Old Testament saints did not have because they were looking forward to Jesus, but we have and can look back to the real thing. And when you think about that, that for as long as humans have been here, they've been grappling with this concept of the divine, but God in his love expressed his own person, his own heart, in a human being. But who is not just human. That's what this passage is about. So it also says that he is the firstborn of creation. And this idea has tripped people up at times because it seems to imply that Jesus had a beginning. Now, I've got four kids, and my oldest, I'll say, this is my firstborn. She was born February 27, 1991. She had a start date, right? She, she has not existed for all eternity. So when I say my firstborn, I'm talking about someone who at a point in time came into existence. And so you can understand how the word might confuse some people. Now in the Old Testament, the word firstborn occurs 130 times, and it's used to describe one who is supreme or first in time. And it also refers to someone who had a special place in the Father's love. Exodus 4.22 refers to Israel, my firstborn son. Israel occupied a place of special relationship to the Father. But sometimes, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's created confusion and sometimes heresies have sprung up as a result of it. Again, figuring out what the word means, you know, what scripture means, it takes time. And it wasn't until uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD that the issue of who Jesus was finally was settled. People knew, but there were factions, and one of the heretical factions that sprung up were the Arians. You may have heard of Arius. Arius was a heretic, who taught that the Son of God was a creature, like you and I are creatures, because we were created. He taught that Jesus was created by the Father, and Arius and his followers would say about the Son of God, there was once when he was not. There was once when he was not. They looked at that word firstborn and said, well... That must mean he had a beginning, which means he has not always existed. But the Apostle Paul, in his sort of theological genius, anticipated the potential confusion. And he says that Jesus is not a created being, but essentially has existed for all eternity. And in fact, in fact, he is the one who created all things. And it's almost like Paul knew exactly what the Arians were going to say and sort of preempted them. I don't know if Arius and his followers read Colossians, but they should have, because it says here in verse 16, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that is a hard statement to square with the idea that there was a time when Jesus was not. That is a hard statement to square with the idea that Jesus was a created being, because it essentially tells us that, on the contrary, Jesus himself is the creator. Now, why does this all matter? Why should you care about this? Because you may think, well, that's, that's interesting. What, what, what relevance does this have for me? It's important because if Jesus Christ is not the sovereign Lord of all creation, how can we trust him with our lives, with our souls, with our eternal salvation? But because Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all creation, we trust him with our lives, our souls, our eternal salvation. It's sort of, you know, uh, when, you know, when the clock breaks, you go back to the maker or the manufacturer to say, you made this, how do we fix it? So if Jesus made us, when we encounter brokenness in our lives and sin and rebellion and hurt and we ruin and break things, we go back to him to fix it because he made us, he's the creator that's a very powerful idea and one that I, that I hope is not lost on us this morning. We keep going back to the manufacturer because, you know, we kind of keep breaking ourselves. Now, as we go on in life and get closer to God and sort of mature in our faith, hopefully we are breaking ourselves less and less. We sort of learn how to, you know, handle the merchandise and use the instruction manual. I keep pushing this metaphor. You get the idea. He's our maker. And we can entrust our lives to him, our souls to him, our eternal salvation, because he's the creator. And he knows how we operate. He knows how we're made. And he knows how to fix us. Hallelujah. So secondly, he's the head of creation. But secondly, he's the head of the body of the church. And verse 18 just says that. He is the head of the body of the church. So, head of creation, now he's the head of the body of the church. And this second image stresses Jesus' relationship to his people and the centrality of Christ in relationship to the people of God. We're members of the body, but the head of the body is Jesus. And the body is the church. It's just another image for the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, this is why Protestants don't follow the Pope as head of the church. I've tried in my ministry not to take shots at, like, other, you know, expressions of the Christian faith. But just, just I, there's no way to get around it. There's, the reason why we don't follow the Pope as the head of the church is because Christ is the head of the church. In fact, no human being is head of the church. No more, mere mortal human being. I'm not the head of the church. I'm not even the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church, and Christ is the head of all true churches. That is exactly the point. 
Now, what makes Christ the head of the church? I have a few things here that might be helpful for you. He is its founder and origin. The church is completely dependent on him for its life and its power. The church has a close personal relationship with him in ways that others do not. And finally, he rules and reigns over the church. Now, there could probably more could be said about what makes Christ the head of the church, but those are just a few things that I think are helpful for us, right? The founder and origin of the church isn't anyone else but Christ. And he gives us, his people, the power we need to live godly and beautiful lives. Now, he does use human beings as instruments, that's true, but Christ is the head of the church. And then third and finally, he is the head of the new creation. Verse 18b says, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's that word preeminent. Now, how is it that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, we might ask? Because in the Bible, other people rose from the dead before Jesus. A few examples, there is the Shunammite woman's son who Elisha raised from the dead. There's Jairus' daughter, who was raised from the dead by Jesus, and Lazarus. All of those resurrections happened before Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. So how can we say that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Well, the answer lies in the fact that all of those people would die again. Right? The Shunammite woman's son brought back to life, but lived out his earthly life and died, hopefully, at an old age. Jairus' daughter, the same thing. Lazarus, the same thing. They all rose from the dead, but they would die again because, well, they were mere mortals. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead was to live evermore. They all died, even though they were risen But Jesus would never die again. And the theologian Peter O'Brien states that Christ is the beginning of the new creation in this sense. And this is really key. He is the head, the beginning of the new creation in this sense that he is the firstborn among the dead, the founder of a new humanity, because that's what the new creation is. That's what the new humanity is. There's no death. There's no sorrow. There's no tears. There's no suffering. There is no mortality in the way that we think of the world, the way the world exists today. The new heaven and the new creation, which is not here yet, but has been inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus, that's why he's the head of the new creation through his resurrection power. And I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is here with us in all of his resurrection power and stands ready to save you. 
He is here with us every day, certainly every Lord's Day, in all of his resurrection power. And so we get in on the new creation because we worship the head of the new creation. And if, if you see what Colossians is doing here, it's making a link between Jesus as the creator of the cosmos in the beginning and the creator of a new heaven and new earth. And he's tying those things together and saying, in the person of Jesus, all of that comes together. He is all of those things. And in the middle, linking it, is the church. The creation of the world and the cosmos started at a point in time and the creation of the new heaven and a new earth is future, but it's been inaugurated in Jesus and the people who essentially are the charter members who have signed up for this coming reality is the body. And he's the head of the body too. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful image and illustration that Paul has given us here in Colossians? For Paul, this is the meaning of the incarnation. This is the meaning of the birth of Jesus. For Paul, this is the meaning of Christmas. That's what he sees, that's what we should see as we look at and think about the baby in the manger, we should also think about these images here. As we understand what the incarnation was, yes, it was the fulfillment of centuries-long prophecies, but it was the reality that the one born to Mary, born in a manger, would become and is and has always been the head of creation the head of the body, and the head of the new creation. Do you fear death? You don't have to answer, but I'm just going to say, like, there's a sense in which we all do, right? The answer is yes, some more than others. In fact, we live in an age, if we could characterize the age we live in right now, it probably is an age more than any other time where we fear death. You know, in the, in the, in the, Medieval period and in the ancient world, every, death was just a reality. It was all around. People didn't live long. You know, people died of disease, famine, and war. It was just a regular thing. If someone did live into old age, it was a rare event. We're living much longer. I would say that we probably have much more anxiety about death than people. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm just saying, like, it's probably true. I think it's true. This is a point where I'm just sharing my opinion from what I've observed. We have such anxiety about death. We spend billions, trillions of dollars on prolonging our lives, and that has a lot to do with the crisis of faith, not really believing that there is anything on the other side. But when we think of these images of Christ as the head of creation, head of the body, head of the new creation because of his resurrection, we ought to take comfort knowing that Jesus conquered death. Do you want to live forever? with no pain or sorrow or tears or suffering? Do you want to experience the fullness of joy and wonder that this life often does not give us because we do live in a fallen and broken world? Well, Christ, who is preeminent over all things, guarantees that for those who follow him, for those who believe in him, for those who trust in him. This is, this is the resonance that all of these ideas have for you. Right? Because tomorrow really isn't promised for any of us. But Christ promises the future for us because he's conquered death. He's conquered hell. He's conquered the grave. 
and everyone who is in Christ will conquer those things too. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now some people say, and I've heard people say this, and you probably have also heard people say this, I don't want to live forever. Uh, has anybody heard people say that? I've heard people say that. And the only thing I can make out in my mind why someone would say that is if they have really twisted ideas about what living forever means. So one, it may just be a way of rebelling against how to live forever, which is I don't want to worship Jesus, right? So it's kind of like us cutting off your nose to spite your face. I'd rather be free in this life and just when I'm dead, I'm gone, that's it. Which I don't really believe anybody really feels that way. It's just a way to sort of like jab at Christians probably. But the other reason people might say that, I don't want to live forever, is because they have, you know, crazy notions about what eternity is. And one of them is that like eternal life is some endless church service. I think people believe that. I think people believe that like living forever in the presence of God is just like an endless church service. And I love what we do here, but I gotta be honest with you, I don't wanna do this for the next 40 gajillion years. Like, there's gotta be like, like this is great as a part of it, but like, like there's gotta be more. And again, I'm just gonna assert my opinion here. Um, so I'm front-loading that. I, I don't have hard evidence, but in the past few years, I have been watching like Nova documentaries on the vastness of outer space and how far the Discovery and Hubble telescopes have gone just in our own solar system. And, you know, I think it took us, our satellite, traveling at like, you know, uh, 160,000 miles an hour, two years to get to Jupiter, okay? The universe we know is vast beyond anything the human mind can comprehend. And even traveling at the speed of light, we'd be dead before we could get to the nearest other solar system. I have to believe, I cannot help but to believe that all of that that is inaccessible to us right now in this life, the vastness of the, of the universe is what awaits us in eternity. I, have, I believe that. I, I, don't, I don't have scriptural sort of precedent to believe that, but there's nothing that, in scripture that goes against that. But I just want to say, like, what awaits us in eternal life is so much more than we could ever comprehend. And on top of that, being in the presence of a holy, limitless, incomprehensible God like the one we see in Scripture. So sign me up for that. Because <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. But the only way that happens is peace with God through Jesus. And look at what Paul says in verse 19. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So how can people like us enjoy and experience the, divine, the wonder of God and all that he has created for all of eternity, Christ has made peace between us and God through the blood of his cross. 
That's why the cross is central. In all of our thinking about God, religion, ourselves, sin, we cannot get around the cross. And anyone who tries to sidestep the cross is in for a rude awakening. Because you have to come by way of the cross. It is only through the cross of Christ that we come to God. It is only through Jesus' cross and the blood of his cross that we have peace with God. It is through the cross of Christ. There is no path to eternal life and fellowship with God that doesn't go through Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, rejoice. But if you know people who do not know Jesus, be burdened. Be burdened to know that not everybody believes this, not everybody knows this, not everybody has this. Not everybody has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Not everybody believes in Jesus as the head over all things and the savior of the world. That's what Christmas is. It is the reality that God has made a way for peace through Jesus, his son. Tell somebody about it. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages, revealed in Jesus, in his life, in his birth, and in his death. Thank you for the resurrection, the guarantee and down payment on eternal life for us, and the comfort we have that death cannot hold us. If you continue to tarry, Lord, and do not return, and we live out our lives and die a natural death, we have confidence that you will raise us also, even as Christ was raised. Lord, let this knowledge fill our hearts with joy and wonder and remove the fear that we might have of death. Lord, as we come into the new year, let our hearts rest in these truths, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is preeminent over all things, and even though right now in our culture there is a clamoring and clattering of voices, especially in this part of the world we live in where skepticism and doubt and unbelief seem like they're at an all-time high, help us, your people, the faithful, to be faithful, to believe, to trust. Strengthen our faith, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.